with Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Ellaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I'm here with Carrie Ellaveld. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast The Brief. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to be talking about the California recall election and what that means towards 2022. Republicans in California and nationally thought they had a winner using this ridiculous, nonsensical <laughs> recall system in one of the most democratic states to try to sneak in one of their own as governor. The media narratives were replete with discussion about how, quote, motivated Republicans threatened apathetic, unmotivated, I guess, Democrats with a stunning defeat. Democrats, of course, in all these stories were in disarray. Yet once the dust settled, Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom didn't just survive the recall election, but he did so with an even bigger percentage of the vote than in his record-breaking 2018 victory. Not only wasn't it closed, but there are hints that the nationwide shift in the suburban vote in places like Orange County is still ongoing. And most importantly, despite efforts to portray California Democrats as scared and panicked prior to the election because they brought in people like Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, the fact is, in the end, Democratic performance was fantastic. It was exactly where it needed to be. So is this a bellwether for the epic incoming 2022 cycle, or is California in its own blue bubble with its own dynamics divorced from the rest of purple America? To discuss this topic, today's guest on the brief will be Nick Raythode. He is the founder of the State Innovation Exchange. They help shape and create model legislation for progressive state legislators around the country. He was a deputy director in the Obama White House, as well as worked with Elizabeth Warren to build a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So he'll be on a little bit later on this show. But for now, Carrie, we've been talking the last two episodes. We were talking about abortion, the Texas law, and we focused a lot on the impact of the law. And we started to get into the political side of things. And so I really want to sort of dig a little bit into more of that because we're starting to see this crop up in races already around the country where, where Republican candidates for governor in places like Nevada and Michigan, purple states, are coming out in favor of Texas-style abortion restrictions. Can I just say yay for vigilante justice? What a great idea that Republicans have brought to us. Just total chaos in our law enforcement system. Anyway, go ahead, please. Sorry. No. So so tell us about some of this polling that has this early polling on this Texas law, because right now I'm not seeing a lot of upside for Republicans. No, no. Zero upside. I mean, there's a, there's two things to consider is what does this do to their base? And what does it do to our base, right? And I don't see how it can possibly help their base, right? If they feel like, oh, well, we're finally getting this thing that we've been wanting forever, you know, it doesn't necessarily motivate them more to get to the polls. Now, they might show up in just as big a numbers anyways. You know, the anti-abortion activists, they're, you know, they vote in high numbers. They might just show up anyway. But I don't think they're going to get a, you know, a bounce out of it. So there's little upside for them there. But on the other side, this is a hugely unpopular law. 
we're starting to see it in polling now. And the more voters find out about it, the less popular it is. So it's doing two things. It's both going to, I think, going to serve as a drag on these Republicans who anyone who's in a swing state or a swing district trying to defend this law is going to be in a lot of trouble. And I remember one White House advisor anonymously telling Politico or someone like several weeks ago, I want to see them defend, you know, their your, a neighbor spying on your aunt who drew, you know, who who drove someone to the you know, abortion clinic because they were in a bad situation, you know, that type of like, we're watching you, big brother, we're watching you type stuff or your, you know, your, your neighbors an informant. I want to see them defend that. That's what that White House advisor said. And sure enough, when you look at the law, right, uh, Monmouth polling, this Monmouth University polling this week had a survey out. And when they asked about how the law is enforced, right, through private citizens acting as an enforcement mechanism, 70% of Americans disapproved of that provision. It is it is like the, the heart of that bill is the vigilante justice, the private citizen aspect of enforcement. 70% of Americans disapproved of that provision. Just 22% of it, it approved of it. Now, if you think that provision is unpopular, how about the $10,000, you know, reward for the bounty hunters, right? I mean, you know, that is even worse. Fully 81% of the public disapproved of it. That's pretty much universal. That's universal at this point. Just for my dad used to say, you can get 20% support for anything, not for this provision, just 14% of people approved of getting the, t- I'm sure that these are people who have planned on filing, you know, complaints and they hope to get the benefit from the $10,000. But really I, the, the law itself is first of all, still nearly two thirds of Americans think that abortion should be legal in at least some cases, if not all cases. So you're wrong there, right? This Monmouth poll found that 50, per, a 54% majority of Americans disagreed with conservative justices who greenlit this thing with the Supreme Court allowing it to turn go into law, right? And then you get into the law itself. The way it's written is terribly unpopular. No one thinks it's a good idea except for like total fringe freaks, okay? And then uh, on top of that, it's dragging down the approval rating in the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court in, in Quinnipiac last week they found the Supreme Court was hitting an all-time low approval rating of 37% approval to 50% disapproval. Now, Monmouth's polling was slightly more forgiving than that, but they're still underwater, 42% approval to 45% disapproval. And that's a 19-point swing from 2016 when they were at 49% approval and 33% disapproval. So just you know, this is the, the Quinnipiac poll found, I think, close to a 30 point swing in their approval rating from a year ago. So the Supreme Court is not doing it itself any favors. People are starting to see it as a partisan hack. Anyway. Yeah. And this is important, Carrie, not because anybody can do anything. We can't vote them out. There's no term limits. Right. We're stuck with the Supreme Court that is there right now. But if Democrats can make enough gains to have a Philip Roof uh, proof Senate next year, tough, tough charge, but just you got to get beyond the margin of, of mansion and cinema, right? If we can do that, eliminate the filibuster, that gives us a lot of moral authority to expand the court. 
right? This is what it does. If the Supreme Court was popular and Democrats go in and start messing around with it, yeah, people might be like, you know, this this seems a little harsh and and maybe an overreaction and maybe too partisan. But if people like, yeah, that court's broken, going in and, and reforming it, is uh, is a much easier sell both morally and obviously politically. The other piece that's really interesting to to what you talk about, Carrie, is that you know, this is so incredibly unpopular. In fact, uh, there was a, a message, a Republican pollster, and I, I forget who he is, messaging guru, big messaging guru on the right, did a focus group of all pro life quote pro life voters. All of them were were anti abortion in every single one. I think he had like eight or 10 people in this, in this focus group, all of them opposed to Texas law. Yeah. They don't even have their own people on it. This yeah. is so incredibly dystopian, so right. so creepy. Right. And what is happening now politically is, you're right, pro-anti-abortion voters, they vote. They're older, they're whiter, they're more conservative. These are people that actually turn out and vote it all the time. Republicans don't need to do anything to get these people to the polls. Our voters in the midterm election, on the other hand, are much more difficult, and that includes young people and young single women. Now you're giving people a reason, a existential reason, to turn out and vote. And what's happening is that between this law and the Mississippi law, which the Supreme Court's going to hear oral arguments in December and will probably rule in the summer prior to the election, means that abortion will be front and center in 2022 might even be one of the marquee top issues on the ballot and republicans are already being asked about the texas law they're not even they're not being asked about the mississippi law they're right. being asked specifically about the texas law which if is going to be way harder for them to defend i mean way harder and because no one yeah. likes it if you I, oppose it then you 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 get an you get the anger from it may only be 15% May only be fifteen percent, but those fifteen percent they vote, they donate money. They're the foot soldiers of the conservative movement, and these are swing states: Nevada, Michigan, Texas, Pennsylvania, Florida. You you lose a percent or two, you're in real danger, right? And so you can either risk uh, angering the most motivated part of your base. Or you risk turning off swing, moderate, suburban women, uh, and motivating young voters, which lean Democratic heavily. You risk motivating them to turn out to the polls. They are in a. This is not a good place for them to be. Yeah. No. And this is not important, but I think the um, Republican pollster guru, messaging guru, is Frank Lutz. Um, Frank yeah. Lutz, right? He that yep. was. I saw that. I saw that same focus group that you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, this is, look, this is of a piece for the Republican Party is just how they are by their fringes being pulled further right and further right, right? And, you know, the Texas at this point, the Texas government is not a government of the people at all. The way they have managed to gerrymander the state at this point, none of those lawmakers have to answer for what they do. So they do whatever heck they want and whatever the heck they get paid to do, you know, whatever the heck, you know, big donors want. Right. And and so, you know, in this case, the Republican Party and the Republican candidates nationwide are being pulled to the right by the fringiest of state governments, the Texas state government 
and the law that they wrote, right? The Mississippi ban, you know, while I 100% disagree with it, isn't a six-week ban, which is basically all abortions, which is, you know, I mean, functionally all abortions, right? Yeah. It's yeah. it's 15 or 16 weeks, which is a little, which, you know, for, for a pro-life legislator, lawmaker, is a little bit more easier to defend, you know? Um, I mean, it's part of them chipping away at abortion rights, right? And this is yeah, just another step, chip right. away. Not yeah, eliminate them, chip away. I mean, even even the Texas right to life was like there were two, there were two challenges filed this week. There was a there was a um, and I didn't follow this closely, so I hope we get these details right. But there was a physician who who went ahead and performed an abortion and wrote about it in an op ed and said, "Here's why I did it uh, in Texas." Right, and now there's two of these you know, $10,000 reward bounty hunter type things that have challenges to this legal challenges to this physician, right? And one of them was filed by some guy who is on house arrest for like 15 years, can't leave his house. And, you know, got, I think he got in some sort of financial fraud. Yeah, trouble. it's corruption. Like and white, he himself admits it. He admits white, it, right? He's white collar crime. And he was like, hey, why shouldn't I be able to get this $10,000? He's not, he doesn't even live in Texas. And then the other person actually objects to the law and wants to be able to like use their challenge to bring down the law. And Texas right to life is like, whoa, these aren't the people we thought would bring the challenges. Well, you wrote a really shitty law that encourages vigilante justice, and that's what you got. So live with it. The executive director, the exact quote was, and I'm still laughing, is they're not motivated by life. (laughs) Because... As if anybody going for a ten thousand dollar. Oh yeah, it's motivated by life, right? It's motivated by life. If somebody was motivated by life, you wouldn't need to provide a bounty. It would be creepy enough already. But there was no need for that ten thousand. The the reason they threw that ten thousand dollar bonus in there was to motivate more people to create challenges. And and what they haven't even started facing it are all the frivolous claims that are going to happen, right? I mean, I know I know, young people on TikTok are organizing challenges against sitting elected officials, right? They want to bog down the whole system and, uh, and break the ability of the state to investigate these issues. And so there are some potentially pretty hilarious days up ahead if we sort of, you know, don't mean to minimize the actual import and the intent of the law, which is horrifying, but it's 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 comically I, horrible. I think that in like five to ten years, if you look up, you know, the definition of the law and of unintended consequences, like this is good. This law could be featured front and center in describing the law of what the law of unintended consequences means. Yeah, that said, what it has done, I think, very effectively, and this is an intended consequence, is that it has given everybody a reminder, this is what Republicans are for. And this is what the Supreme Court is willing to allow. And the Supreme Court may still invalidate this specific law. I think there's no chance that the Mississippi restrictions don't get rubber stamped by the Supreme Court. But this issue will be front and center in 2022. And, and this, I, there was, I think, almost a, a sense of the boy who cried wolf when liberals said, you know, Republicans want to take away our right to choose, right? And I was like, oh, my God, you've been talking about this for 50 years now, right? When this Roe v. Wade, you know, early 70s. It's like 50 years. 
you know, we're, we're like, they don't really want to pass a law to ban this because this is how they motivate their crazy base. And so whatever, like we're protected. Supreme Court will protect us. And suddenly they got the Supreme Court they wanted and they are getting the laws that they wanted. And it's this is one of those like you believe what they say. Nobody is should be surprised that this is happening because they never pretended otherwise. And so that complacency on our side, hopefully, hopefully goes away and people realize this is this is an actual thing I have to fight for just as hard as the anti-abortion people fight when they turn out and vote. You know, one thing I'd almost forgotten about, just to bring this back to the politics for Republicans, is that when Mitch McConnell, who's the guy who stole the seats, who like, you know, packed the court with conservative justices, right? When he was asked about this law, he tried to downplay it. He ran away from it. So he when he was asked about it a couple of weeks ago and he said, oh, I think it was a technical decision from the Supreme Court. And I don't think that this is going to be, you know, necessarily in, you know, um, indicative or or you know f- final in terms of its consequences and he the technical part is exactly what he said something about a technical decision but he was running away from it he you know he didn't say yeah we finally got what we wanted because he didn't want this is not a law he wanted to own even though it's his conservative court that went ahead and greenlit it um, so the politics can't be good if Mitch McConnell is trying to run away from the law yeah, I, I think they, they really would rather the Supreme Court keep bailing them out so they can pass a law, pretend to be doing something about it without having to suffer the political consequences of going through with a p- unpopular, unpopular platform, especially when you're taking people's rights away. That is yeah. always extra fraud. Giving people new rights, that's a little harder. Like, but taking somebody's right away, that's that's never, I think, a good place to be politically so Carrie, our guest is oh sorry (laughs) you want to just say you know if you want to talk about taking people's rights away motivating someone i will say that that was one of the things that motivated the lgbtq community at the beginning of the obama administration was prop nine in california that actually took marital rights away from same-sex couples and there was something just guttural about having you know the bands were one thing but having rights taken away like that it was such a huge wake-up call and i think it's why the lgbtq community came into the obama administration fired up and ready to demand action from the administration anyway go ahead yeah, no, and that's that's actually a great point. There was fury. I mean, it was a palpable, visceral fury. Mm-hmm. And this is what Republicans are doing right now. They're waking up people that otherwise might not be, you know, that might be disengaged politically. And the Supreme Court is going to do so right before the 2022 election. So speaking about the 2022 election, let's let's bring in our guest. He is Nick uh, Raythout. He is the founder of the State Innovation Exchange, uh, he was a deputy director of intergovern- intergovernmental affairs. Boy, that's a handful. Uh, in the Obama administration, Obama White House, he worked with Elizabeth Warren to create the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on. I'm a big fan of both of you. So it's exciting oh. to be here. Hi, thank you. Thanks. We, we hope we don't let you down. 
you are. <laughs> so, so Nick, I know you're you're an expert in sort of state level politics, and I know you've been tracking the California recall election. We talked a little bit at the beginning of the show about the expectations, the media expectations at the beginning of the campaign that Democrats were in trouble. They were they were not as engaged in those conservatives. Boy, they were fired up because of masks and vaccines. And oh no, they they may actually get a Republican governor in California. And then the election happened and and it turns out that Gavin Newsom did even better this time around than he did in 2018. So uh, what is your initial sort of gut take on those California results? Well, I think, I mean, well, thanks again for having me on. But, you know, my initial take is that this began and ended with COVID and the mandates. And once Gavin Newsom started leaning in on that, and focusing there. And you couple that with the fact that they had this like cartoon character and Larry Elder running against him. You know, I think the fear of having a person like that uh, at the, at the top of the, you know, uh, of the government in California scared a lot of people. Uh, And then you have the advantage of the, you know, money and uh, voter registration amongst Democrats, all of those things coupled together, I think really brought it home for the Democrats uh, in California. One of the things that people are, you know, what, what are the takes of uh, against the idea that this could be some sort of indicator for 2022 is people saying, well, I mean, you know, come on, this is California. Obviously, the registration edge is, you know, states like two thirds, Democrats, et cetera. You know, so is this really much of an indicator? And I, I did see um, David Binder, who was doing polling for uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, sent out a tweet saying that that among vaccinated independents, they voted 60 percent no um, against the recall. Right. So in favor of Newsom against the recall. So 67 percent uh, Newsom won vaccinated independents. So then, and then among unvaccinated independents, they were 90 percent yes on the recall. But the vast majority of independents who voted in California were vaccinated. So mm-hmm. even, you know, even though they're basically all the unvaccinated folks voted for the recall, they were overpowered by the sheer number of vaccinated independents. So but I do wonder. So I, I wonder what your take on that is. And and just if you have other examples of where you think it shows that this isn't just a California specific event, but could translate elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think if there's one lesson to take away, it's that one. And looking through the frame of who's been vaccinated and not vaccinated, there was like a moment in time and, you know, uh, in the cycle of COVID where anti-vaxxers were, you know, really had a lot of energy. There was a lot of, you know, voices and and that sort of thing. And I think there's an anti-anti-vaxxer movement uh, happening in the country as well. And that's what you're seeing in those polls. And what you draw from that is that, to your point, independents and some Republicans who have been vaccinated, those people are pretty large numbers, um, will be, you know, are, are those people that we can speak to as Democrats. They're the ones that are like, you know, I, you know, I believe in some of Trump's policies. I believe in, you know, small government, whatever tax, that sort of thing, traditional conservative values. But this thing with COVID, we're done with. We got vaccinated. Who are these people that are like, my kids are in school now and saying that they can't be vaccinated, no masks, no, that sort of thing. I think that that is um, 
that's ripe for Democrats to, to play on and build on, in, and especially going into the midterm elections. It, it will drive the election. And you're seeing some of that rhetoric and lessons learned here. Uh, I'm in Virginia uh, in the governor race that's coming up here. Can you speak a little bit more to that then? Yeah. So, I mean, in Virginia, just to give your listeners kind of a landscape, you know, a, a context of what's happening here, uh, you know, we have been trending blue for some time. We haven't had a Democrat governor since Bob McDonnell in 2009 Republican. when he was a Republican. And since then, we've had Democrats winning statewide. We've had, you know, cycle after cycle where Democratic presidential candidates have won since that period of time. And so we've been trending blue. But what's been happening, I think, this time uh, and what traditionally happens or it's happened in Virginia is that uh, because we're off year, we're right after the presidential election. It usually would swing to the opposite party that's won the presidency uh, and that this year, historically, that would traditionally be Republicans. And, you know, the the difference between what's going on in Cal- what happened in California and here is that they're running someone uh, by the name of Glenn Youngkin. And Youngkin is was the former CEO of co-CEO of Carlisle Group. He is sort of cut from a similar cloth as a lot of northern uh, Virginia su- suburban residents. You know, he's, he's affable. He's nice. He doesn't seem crazy. He's not a cartoon character like Larry Elder and like Herschel Walker and some of these other people that they're trying to run. And he's appealing. And I think that there is something to that that will that will that will be different from California. The other thing I think that's playing out here, and I think this is also one of the headwinds in Virginia to be looking out for, both uh, both in Virginia and then in the midterms, is that um, especially in the suburbs here, you know, I have three kids in school, and there there was a lot of frustration with Democrats about the opening of schools, especially here in, in Arlington County where I'm at. And there was a tendency to blame the Democrats, teachers unions, that type of thing. And I think that there is some some fault lines there that the Democrats should be looking out for and that Republicans could potentially lean into. But again, the bottom line will be in this race as well, vaccinations, mask mandates, things like that, that I think a lot of people really are looking for because they want to get out, get back to some normalcy. And if you and Youngkin has come out opposed to those sorts of things, which I think in the end may may uh, may tank his candidacy. So you talked um, earlier about the Republican sort of cartoonish uh, nominees, Larry Elder in California. He, he's a black candidate who thought that slave owners should have gotten reparations. Right. <laughs> after this. So, I mean, it doesn't get much more cartoonish. Uh, thanks to Donald Trump, it looks like Georgia will have Herschel Walker uh, going up against Democratic incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock and uh, cartoonish. How much do you think candidates actually matter? Are we, are we, in other words, are we so polarized anymore that it doesn't matter if it was Larry Elder or if it was a mainstream Rockefeller Republican? Does it really matter at this point? Or does a candidate still have an impact on the end results of a campaign? I think it does. I think candidates do have an end of impact on on the campaign, especially in, you know, sort of blue, uh, kind of purplish states. Um, and there's a lot of independents out there. There's a lot of moderate Republicans and, you know, traditional Democrats that uh, sort of are starting to balk at, you know, these Trump Republicans that have been running across the country. And I think that there is something to the candidates uh, being you know, halfway normal on the Republican side that could at least give them a shot. 
Yeah, Carrie, you've been yeah. writing a lot about how Mitch McConnell is just bristling at Donald Trump, right, for, for promoting <laughs> these wacko candidates, right? Yeah, well, this is just like sort of a sidebar, but Political reported this week. I think it was a political report. Sometimes I get mixed up. But anyway, I, I that, that, you know, or maybe it was the Wall Street Journal. Anyway, it doesn't matter. My wife is always like, quit telling me the details and just tell me the story. All right, so here's the story. Uh, that, uh, that, Trump is calling around trying to figure out how to how to get rid of Mitch McConnell as leader of that caucus, you know, which I mean, first of all, no one's popular enough in that caucus other than I mean, Mitch McConnell, as dismal as he is, is still the most popular person in that caucus to be leader. Right. Um, but but the other and, and, and people like Ted Cruz, who would be like sort of a Trumpy firebrandy person, everyone hates him. They can't stand him. So, like, there's no one to take, you know, there's no one to challenge Mitch McConnell right now. It just tells you how how much, you know, Donald Trump understands about that caucus. But. In any case, you know, here you are, you're trying to barrel toward the, you know, toward the midterms. You're, you're trying to pick up, you know, one seat. One. You're trying to, you know, right. and, and the former president and basically leader of your party is trying to, like, unravel the caucus in the middle of, you know, everyone <laughs> gearing up for this midterm election. And at the same time, I think at this point, he has made Donald Trump who should be entirely washed up at this point. He lost the House. He lost the Senate. He lost the White House. He was twice impeached. He lost the popular vote twice. And, you know, he should be washed up, but he's not because Republicans are who they are and didn't have the guts to get rid of him. And he's now made 40 endorsements, more than 40 endorsements, I think, across the country. And every time he endorses that someone, he's doing one of two things. He's dooming them for a swing state or a swing district. Like he's he's radicalizing. He's put a putting a radical person who's going to run in a swing district and potentially lose it. Or he's he's endorsing someone in a seat that Republicans would have won anyways. So one way or the other, the party that comes out of next year is going to be more radicalized. Their quote unquote kind of normal people are going to be thinned out on the one side and their other people are going to be more radicalized because they will have, you know, primaried sort of normal people out. So it's just going to be, it's going to be the crazy caucus on both you know, in both chambers. Sorry. And I just, you know, dominated, yeah, no, but be interesting. No, no, yeah, that's really, you're, you're totally right. I mean, they've over the years sort of created this Frankenstein uh, in Trump, you know, between uh, Fox News, their communications, how they message things. That's one sort of set of things. And then even gerrymandering, you know, how they've re- re- drawn districts that are so extreme that you get these crazy people that come out of those places. And, and you're right. They will be centered on those people. And, and yet again, I mean, this is not some badge of honor for Democrats. We, we you know, probably we have not done a good job in winning state legislative elections. I could go on for, for hours on that. But yet again, uh, in many states, they'll be drawing, redrawing these lines at, at a very extreme uh, in a very extreme way, which I think will further consolidate and so solidify them in the sort of camp of, of crazy elected officials that, you know, Marjorie Green Taylor's, uh, those people will be coming out of. So that'll be very interesting. And, and you know, like I said, thank goodness for that, because 
we also have a lot of problems as Democrats, you know, that that we running into this election, if they they had some level of normalcy or, or whatever, they would they would probably run away with the midterms, I think, you know, both in the House and the Senate. Uh, and thank goodness that they you know, that they have this other circus going on. So speaking of circuses, Trump is so intent to really inject himself back into sort of center stage. So historically, the first midterm after a presidential, a new president is a bloodbath for that president's party. I mean, I think the average uh, loss for the incumbent party is about 30 some seats in the House. That's average. Problem is right now that Biden is a relatively low profile president historically speaking. I mean, I, I don't think they know how to really demonize a white old guy. Like they, they just, they can't, <laughs> yeah. they don't have visceral, like sink their teeth into it. Like they would a woman or a, you know, black candidate, uh, president like Obama. And, uh, and then now Trump is going to come back in. And so does it become a referendum on Trump? Right. And, and definitely California Democrats sort of tied Larry Elder to like, here's, this is Trump's guy. What do you think Trump's impact is going to be next year uh, for on their side and our side? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think that is one interesting thing out of California, like you, you alluded to, that it started off as a referendum on Gavin Newsom. But when Larry Elder emerged as the candidate, it all of a sudden became about Larry Elder. And similarly, I think you're right that, you know, we have Biden um, and I think that Democrats will have to find find a message and a case to make on why, you know, uh, he should be reelected uh, and, and why we should be winning in the midterms. But if a Trump figure, uh, you know, sort of is becomes prominent, you know, in the midterms and then looking into the next presidential cycle, I think they're in for a lot of trouble. I mean, I, I think they probably will get the whooping that <laughs> that they probably end up deserving at the end of this. Um, I, you know, I still have faith in the country that that will happen because um, we were pretty close this time. I mean, you know, for all of Trump's faults, for all of Trump's like shenanigans, I think, but for, you know, some of the economic stuff and COVID, we were, we were, it, it was way too close. Uh, he could have potentially won, but for those things. And, and I, uh, I hope that some of the lessons from California, the exhaustion and fatigue from COVID, I think exhaustion and fatigue of the modern politics with Trump and these like constant antics will win the day and, and, you know, uh, uh, calmer minds uh, will, will prevail looking in, into the midterms and, and the presidential. I, I'd love to hear you guys talk a little bit about what happened in Orange County. There was a huge New York Times article that I never got a chance to read specifically about Orange County. And I'm sure you guys can talk about it. So I'd be interested to know, you know, in Orange County is this has this profile of being typically Republican. Um, but what happened to it during the uh, during the recall? So, I mean, it, it swung. <laughs> Gavin Newsom won the recall in Orange County. Uh, certain demographics, uh, Vietnamese voters, uh, Little Saigon in Orange County swung heavily. We're talking about 30 points. Uh, these voters, they responded to Donald, just like Cuban-American voters in Miami. Vietnamese voters in Orange County responded to the whole socialism attacks. And, uh, and thus... Um, I think it's one of the few Asian groups, if not the only Asian group that actually supported Donald Trump and it all swung heavily back. So there's, there's that hope that, that, um, that the suburbs continue to trend in our direction the way they have in places like everywhere. And, uh, 
And to that point, so Nick, you're, you're sort of an expert on state level legislation and you definitely, you've seen what Alec does on the right. They craft his model legislation and stuff like the Texas law comes out of that. I don't know if Alec had a hand in that Texas law, but everybody else is now jumping on it, wants to recreate it. Um, these laws, because of that heavy gerrymandering, because of that dramatic rightward shift of the Republican Party, it really does risk Republicans' uh, ability to even compete in those suburban districts, correct? Yeah, I, it, it does. Uh, and and just a little bit, you know, of context on the, the what the Republicans have done really since the 1970s is invest in the states and they've built up their power there. They've put poured resources. They've been ruthlessly dogged at doing that. And then, you know, around 2010, they really consolidated and, and solidified uh, their control of state legislatures in the country. And they have this infrastructure across the country. You mentioned Alec. Uh, there's a group called the State Policy Network that provides sort of the intellectual underpinning to ALEC. Um, they have organizing through Americans for Prosperity. They have communications hubs that are all put, brought together and invested in that allows them to have this sort of command and control of state legislatures and policymaking. And that's why you see these things happening. That's where Republicans actually move legislation forward, and then they come to D.C. and do nothing. They stop everything from happening here because they are legislating and advancing their agenda in the states. And that is something that I think is a huge problem for Democrats. As you're saying, you know, the Texas law, that's going to move into probably 20-some states. I know, you know, many states now are writing those similar laws to get passed where they have control. And I think that um, if they go too far extreme, though, like the Texas law, uh, like some of the other things that they're you know, pushing, it again, similar to the gerrymandering, they could be a victim of their own success and take things a little too far. And so I think that that is definitely something to watch. Do you think, Alec, are they pushing, like, are, is this Republican machine, are they pushing the anti-vax, anti-mask agenda? Or is that more of a personal agenda of the DeSantis and, and Greg Abbott who think that they're running for president in 2024 and need this cover of, quote, freedom to be able to justify how properly conservative they are to the, you know, uh, even as they kill their own supporters it, disproportionately in places like Florida and Texas? Right. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I don't think that that's being pushed by establishment. I mean, I think even Fox News, you know, had their had their policy on vaccinations and you had people speaking out against it even there. So, yeah, I I don't think that that I think it is just sort of this weird calculus that they've some of these folks have made. Do you think there is a an undertold story about um, or underappreciated story about what happened in California or or really nationally at this at this point, any in any, you know, in anything related to the midterms next year? Huh, it's a good question. I mean, I really do think that it was just a combination of a few things that that really kind of carried it over. I think COVID is going to be front and center. And I think that really will be unless a major event happens. I think that will continue to be in the minds of voters. And, you know, that to me, again, is the biggest takeaway. I think for Republicans, it's watching the people that they they, they try to run, especially statewide in some of these places, uh, because I think that voters are tired of these extreme sorts of politics. Um, there is this anti-anti-vax uh, 
uh, sort of thread running through most Americans now. They've just had it with these people. And, you know, I think Biden's um, efforts uh, to mandate uh, vaccinations and masks and those sorts of things have actually, you know, pulled really well. And I think a lot of Americans are supportive of that because there there is a lot of this fatigue. And I think those types of things are really where the bread and butter uh, will be. Um, you know, again, we'll see what what the national, what the federal Democrats do Hopefully they can go back into their districts uh, in 2022 with a, an infrastructure bill, some form of voting rights legislation. I think it'd be really difficult to make the case, especially to black and brown voters that, you know, uh, please elect us again, give us full control again. And this time we're going to do it. You know, I think that that's going to be something to watch. But but again, I think really it'll be COVID that dominates. That, you know, that's an excellent point. And, and a lot of our guests talk about how Democrats have to deliver for people, there's a sort of subtext where we had the the uh, rescue plan, and what what, what was it, Carrie? Like thirty percent actually credit Democrats for the rescue plan and the benefits from the rescue plan. So Democrats clearly are not very good at selling their own accomplishments. And so I'm not at this point. I'm not sure even if we get an infrastructure plan passed, if we were to you know if we're going to get credit for making that happen. But um, <laughs> how important is passing? Positive, having a positive agenda to run on, passing legislation, passing infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better plan compared to running against Trump and Trump candidates. And, oh, my God, they're going to take away vaccine mandates and mass mandates. I'm going to put your children at risk. It's the how much of it is hope versus yeah. fear as a, as a campaign tactic <laughs> yeah. to motivate, because our base is less likely to turn out than their base is. What is the magic formula to get our people to turn out? Yeah, I think it's a little, I think it's a combination of both. I mean, you know, the fear of Texas style uh, abortion laws, of sort of these rollbacks to vote, uh, to access to the ballot, uh, coupled with these like extreme candidates um, that I think will motivate a certain set of people. I think that if you want to start peeling up a lot of independents and Republicans, Democrats ran on putting adults back into the White House, into the room. Democrats ran on delivering for Americans. And I do think that there has to be something that we can take home and just say, we had full control. Here's what we brought to you, even if the messaging doesn't fully, you know, uh, or if Americans don't fully give us credit for it. I still think that that's something we need to we need to be able to co- go back to the districts and talk about. And, you know, you don't think at this point, you know, uh, Biden's vaccination push and uh, the American Rescue Plan is enough to do that. Just I think to- that, that. Yeah, I think I think I think there is a lot there. Um, Biden, I think, was elected to address covid. And he, he's done doing that. And he's done that pretty well. I mean, you know, we're, we're going out now and you can have dinner at a restaurant. You know, you can do certain things now that you weren't able to do. He's faced some, you know, problems with the Delta variant and that sort of thing. He's gone aggressively and used both sticks and carrots, I think, to do it. And he's done that very effectively. And so that is something to run on. And I do think, again, COVID is going to dominate so that will be an underpinning. But I, I, I just fear, um, especially in communities of color, where, you know, there is this sense that campaigns and elections, uh, candidates come in uh, every four years, ask for a vote, 
they get nothing for it. If we go back with nothing for it, <laughs> I think it's going to be a problem. There's a lot of fatigue there, at least from the folks I talk to. So you, you made a really good point earlier that Democrats really don't have a great history of focusing at the state level, right? We're, we're so president focused. And, you know, now I think we've gotten better at, at the Senate matters because of the Supreme Court, right? It's like little baby steps. That's a long way still from going down to state legislatures. And the reason the Texas law passed in a state like Texas that really is a purple state, functionally, it's a purple, it's not, not people who vote, but if you look at the demographics, it's a purple state. Yet yeah. you had big enough Republican majorities to pass this regressive legislation. And you see that all across the country, uh, places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, which are really sort of 50-50 states yet have either majorities or even super majorities at that state legislature. Now, we don't know what the maps are going to look like yet for next year because we're still in the middle of the redistricting apportionment process. Um, odds are we will still have these heavily gerrymandered Republican majorities in a lot of these states because we weren't able to make better gains last year, because again, we're not so focused at that state level. What are your thoughts? How do we get sort of voters and people to realize that things like the Texas law, they happen because we are neglecting our state level government? Yeah, exactly, Marcus. That's, a, that's an excellent point. And, you know, this is something I've been working on for uh, almost all my career, for almost 20 years, trying to get Democrats to focus in at the state level. Because if you think about how power actually runs in this country, it does emanate from the states or the United States of America. And what, ha what, what Republicans have figured out a long time ago is that not only can you control policymaking at the state level, if you have control, that's where sort of the pipeline for new candidates come from. There was a young Barack Obama in the state legislature that eventually became president. That's where uh, you mentioned redistricting comes from. That's also where people learn and get to know how government works and policymaking works. And they get messaging at that level. You reinforce what, what laws are that eventually then emanates up to the federal level. You know, immigration is a really good example of this. To this day, you still hear people talking about um, you know, uh, even Democrats, you know, let's let's secure the border first. We're a nation of laws. And then they'll go into like, oh, everything, everything, everything. But that has been reinforced the last 20 some years at the state level by Republicans. And that for whatever uh, reason or, or actually for a lot of reasons is is what the frame is. Um, and there's so many of those policies, so many of those laws that. Um, uh, that they've been able to frame in that way. And so it, it is just a combination of a lot of things that we just miss when you miss investment at the state and local level. And so, you know, I mentioned the infrastructure that they have. We need to build similar uh, infrastructure in the states. We need to invest in state legislative races. A few thousand bucks here and there at, in, at different legislative races could make all the difference in changing, in changing the, the composition of the state, of redistricting, of how people learn laws, all of those sorts of things. And so my prayer and hope is that one day we'll get it. And I thought we were close when Trump won and people were starting to look at the states again. Uh, but all of a sudden, you know, it seems like they've forgotten it. So unfortunately. Yeah, I was going to I was going to I was going to give you an opportunity to pitch something. And I still want to give you an opportunity to pitch something. But you actually pitched something great right there. And it's something that Carrie and I have definitely uh, banged the drums on in Daily Coast, too, is the importance of state legislatures. We always every cycle we endorse in key state legislative races, uh, trying to win uh, state legislatures. 
because, again, that's where a lot of this legislation may, it happens, the anti-voter restrictions, the anti-choice restrictions. Uh, but then you look at a state like Oregon or California or Washington, where it's easy to vote, it's convenient to vote, women don't have any restrictions on their right to make medical decisions with their doctors, even if that means an abortion. Um, it makes a difference what happens at that state level. And um, so I'm glad you brought that up. And I noticed real passion in your voice too, bringing that up, right? I mean, it's clearly it's just something you yeah. care about. Is there something else you want to sort of suggest that our readers and our listeners uh, and our viewers, they're, they're a very activist crowd. Like what should they yeah. really what do you want them to do? Well, first of all, I love the the readers and listeners, and I'm a big fan of Daily Coast just, just generally. And and both of you have been excellent at at sort of banging the drum about local involvement, and that's that's really where my head is, and that's that's sort of my pitch is that you know it, it, it can get frustrating watching what's going on in Washington. You see Joe Manchin, you see Kristen Cinema, you see these people just holding up this entire agenda. But if you just turn around and look in your backyard, there is real opportunity at your school board level, at the county uh, county level, at the state legislative level to make real difference in your community and, and, and in the lives of your children, your family, those sorts of things. And organizing locally, focusing locally, I think is the way you will win. It'll feel good. You'll see you're going to make a difference. And that's how you make change. Start running for stuff locally. Start investing in local candidates. Start putting money and effort and resources there. Let the circus happen in Washington because we can build up from the grassroots. And I know that's exactly how you all think. And um, and uh, and my hope is that we can we can reorganize and refocus ourselves there. Yeah, I love the idea of let the circus happen in in Washington. There's only so much we can do right now, particularly with Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin being obstructionist a holes. There's a lot of things we can objectively, can, affirmatively do. Carrie, can I just ask real quick? Since you know yeah. you did, you have a perspective of having worked in the White House as much as you have this this uh, you know yeah. ground level, this grassroots level at your core. Do you what what do you think is the I mean, is is the White House pushing hard enough on voting rights on the voting rights bill? Do you do you think that they're they're doing what they need to do in order to get that across the finish line? Or are they just too focused on the infrastructure stuff right now to get to it? Yeah, well, well, it's sad if that's the case. And I think that is unfortunately the case that there could be a lot more. I mean, I think Biden has used some of his bully pulpit to be able to make the case, but they should be on a daily basis. I mean, this is fundamental to our democracy to get the, you know, access to the ballot. I mean, that's what we were founded on. And the fact that we aren't talking about this more sort of, you know, ebbs and flows uh, and the headlines, you know, is, is a problem. And I do think that there needs to be more of a push. And, and one of the lessons from the Obama years is to get out there more, to communicate more, to try to sell things more to the American people. They're, they're, people are open. I think people are reasonable in, in how they view the world. And what they see, what's going on, the, the, the thing that Republicans capitalize on is, un, you know, disinformation, people being uninformed. And, you know, we have an opportunity because we have the presidency to change that. And I hope I hope that they can do more of that. Nick Rathod, Rathod. You, you know, just a little funny aside, you know, I went on, I went on YouTube and trying to like, how do you pronounce your last name? Right. And I, I saw four different places and they all pronounce it differently. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Finally, how, came do you across... pro- how do you pronounce it, Nick? 
Rathod. Rathod. Finally came yeah. across a Charles Blow interview where, where he said, did I say it right? He said, That's yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so funny. <laughs> so, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Nick is the founder of the um, – Oh, remind me, the Stay, Stay Innovation, Innovation Exchange. Yes. Yep. Yep. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you both. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> um, you know, he made a really, I, I really like the idea that that we're so hung up right now on Kirsten Cinema and just so frustrated at how much it's limiting our ability to move forward. Yet there's a lot of organizing happening at that state level. And if you're a progressive and you're really interested in, in a more progressive caucus, primaries are not too far away for a lot of those state level races. Now we don't know what the maps look like yet. So everything's sort of on a holding pattern, but maps are starting to be approved, you know, across the States. And, you know, probably within a month, we're going to have probably maybe the bulk of the maps already out there and people are going to be announcing for campaigns. And now it's going to be a really good time to start looking at candidates at that local level that really motivate and excite you and start fighting for, for these next elections. Cause next year is, it's, it's the ball game, Carrie. It's everything. Yeah. I mean, one thing I always go back to is when we were interviewing the uh, women from the Texas Organizing Project and us saying, well, how do you get people motivated? You know, because this isn't, you know, this isn't national level stuff. And they were like, it's the local stuff that sells. That's the real juice. You know, so so part of it is is, you know, you can get an exciting candidate, but also to turn people out. You have to have something exciting that actually makes a difference on the ground in their, you know, in their district. And I do think this is one place where if the politics work the way they think we think they will, the masking and vaccine mandates issue is a local issue at the mm. you know school board level, right? Great point. So yeah. this is you know people people who who went to these. I, I read story after story about people who went to the school board and they were like amazed at, you know, these idiots who are running around yelling at them. And, you know, the, the favorite GOP refrain now is we know where you live. I mean, it's just sheer intimidation. It's horror. Terrorism. terrorism. Um, it's terror. It's terrorism. Right. It is. It's domestic terrorism. And they say it all the time. We know where, where you live. That is like the GOP refrain now. But in any case, you know, people who want sanity on their school boards, this is these this is where, you know, this you can't get more local than that. Um, so I do think that these these elections in a way that I haven't even I mean, I'm just kind of, you know, sometimes you write a piece and you sort of think it through while you're writing and you make a discovery. I feel like I'm talking this through now and realizing that there is a local issue that's going to be on the ballot in virtually every district this year. And, you know, in, in the districts that are already really fringy red there, it's just going to stay that way. But in the swing districts where people want sane governance and they want potentially masking mandates that can save lives, vaccine mandates, they want their kids to be safe. That issue is going to be on the ballot at the, at a very local level in, in every district across the country. Um, and that, and I think that's a good thing for us. Yeah, I would even say just showing you don't have to run for school board Just show up just support, right? Counter the the nuttiness that is that is happening, the hysteria over mass mandates and critical race theory, which none of them can even describe is just this general, vague, 
fear of things that are black. Um, but I also wouldn't discount, even if you're like in the, in the, in a red, red district, I mean, Cobb County, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta, was a 65% Republican uh, county at one point, and Joe Biden won it handily this time around. Places do flip. You got to work. You got to organize. You got to be engaged. Even, and this is, I know, Carrie, this is a big one with you with, you know, a lot of the rural organizing stuff. A lot of it is even just cutting down the margins, right? I mean, if if, if Republicans are getting 85% of the vote in your county and you can help get that to 70%, okay, yeah, it's still a solidly, you know, 40-point Republican county, but you just cut that margin of victory and it makes it easier for Democrats to run up the score in the cities and then compete and win in the suburbs. Uh, That is the game. Every Every play, every precinct is a battleground. Every precinct is part of the uh, of the of the campaign effort. And you know, every year we say, every cycle we say, this is the most important cycle ever, right? But it, it is. I mean, it, it is. just it, unfortunately every cycle is existential. We just found out that Republicans. The Trump, you know, people, they had a well thought out legal memorandum on how they were going to steal the election. And it all hinged on one person, on on Mike Pence. And he only decided not to do it when he talked to uh, Dan Quayle. (laughs) Dan (laughs) Quayle. Our democracy was saved by Dan Quayle. But apparently we haven't, I mean, you know. If you look at it that way, I haven't been given Dan Quill enough, you know. You shouldn't I get any credit. credit. He saved our democracy. He shouldn't. We shouldn't be in a place where Dan Quill is <laughs> the deciding vote. Hanging by a thread. <laughs> and Dan Quill is the one who, you know, who, who secures it for us. I mean, that is frightening. That is just frightening. Yeah. And if you look at that memo, I mean, you know, it. It was a well thought out plan. It was it was like there was nothing constitutional about it. It was written by oh, no. a supposedly a constitutional. It was completely unconstitutional. But the thing about it was is that it definitely wasn't a situation where they weren't they just weren't gonna certify for Joe Biden. They were gonna they were gonna hand the presidency back to Trump. They were gonna it, go it wasn't it wasn't just we're not gonna certify Biden so so Trump stays because we didn't certify Biden. It was Trump wins it because we're not certifying these yeah. three or four states or whatever. So Trump wins it. And the memo basically said when when Democrats complain, you know, screw them, we'll throw it to the courts. And then we have the yeah. Supreme Court. That was the plan. And would the Supreme Court have ratified that? You kind of hope not. But do we trust the Supreme Court? We didn't, you know, they 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 handed the election to George Bush in 2000. And this is an even more Republican, even more right wing, even more partisan Supreme Court. So, Carrie, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to Nick uh, of the State Innovation Exchange for joining us and talking about 2022 and how California, New Jersey, uh, um, Virginia play factor into what next year is going to look like and the importance of state level organizing, not just at the federal level, but also your state legislative offices. Critically important. Thanks to you, Carrie, for being such a marvelous co-host as always. Thanks to Walter Einenkel for producing the show. Kara Zelaya for uh, for doing social media promotion. Thanks to everybody who joined and is listening or watching the show. Love you guys. Love everything you do for our democracy. Thank you so very much. See you guys next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. 
can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.